Thanks, and, um, and thanks to the organizers. Um, I was attracted to the workshop, um, particularly because it's interdisciplinary. But I guess with that in mind, um, as a lawyer, I probably need to set up some of the, the framework that I'm going to use a little bit. Um, and as my title suggests, I'm sort of looking at the issue of um, detention, particularly of asylum seekers, but also maybe of other regular migrants. Um, but looking at it under human rights law and under the law of the European Union, uh, which is really my area of speciality. Um, and just to set that up a little bit, I guess most people would be familiar with the idea that there are standards in international human rights law that affect the detention of, say, asylum seekers. There are some rules in the Refugee Convention, standards in the international covenants, um, and lots of case law from the European Court of Human Rights, which adjudicates on the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, and that's the body of law that I refer to in the paper, broadly speaking, as international human rights law. I suppose what's a new feature um, is a role for the European Union in this area, because really before the Treaty of Amsterdam in 1995, the EU dealt with immigration and asylum in sort of a political context, but didn't really adopt binding norms. But in the intervening years, we've had the EU become a major actor in immigration and asylum, particularly in refugee law. So we're now at a stage when core norms of the Refugee Convention have been reproduced and transformed into EU law, and highly sensitive human rights issues like detention are governed by EU instruments. Um, and I suppose that's an interaction, that interaction between international human rights law and EU law is one that I've been studying in lots of different contexts. And what you've been given today was just the very beginnings of some work, so it's basically not only just in draft, but in complete work, where I start to look at the interactions between international human rights law and some potential um, EU interventions on the subject of detention. So I'm really just going to map out the terrain of the rules, um, and obviously not exhaustively, because I'm going to do this in an extremely broad brush. But the thesis that I was, um, that I've been concerned with, sort of generally speaking, and that I'm going to sort of elaborate on today, is whether there's added value in EU law. Which might seem strange if you think of the EU as this sort of purely economic entity that hasn't had human rights at its core and you know, doesn't necessarily come to mind as an entity that is concerned very much with individual rights. But I guess my title kind of gives some of it away because I've referred to the elusive universal subject. So I think international human rights law is obviously all about human rights of the individual and it sets up norms that purport to have a certain universality. But in fact, very often it's tied to the state system, because we're talking about instruments of public international law, <coughs> which tend to, in various guises, accept the basic premise that states may, in their sovereign discretion, control entry and residence in their territory, which places migrants in a precarious position, even under international human rights law. <coughs> so in my paper, if anybody has read it, there's an idea that I call just the statist assumption. Um, and because this is just an extract from the larger work, and um, the status assumption is what I refer to as that sort of scene that runs through international human rights law, which accepts for the most part that states have this sort of sovereign discretion. Now, I'm not saying that assumption is watertight or that international human rights bodies don't um, transform it in various ways, but it's still a, a feature. Whereas in contrast in EU law, when EU law deals with particularly movement of EU citizens across the EU, but laterally also third country national family members of EU citizens, 
those who enjoy rights of family reunification under EU law. And as I'm particularly interested in, there's kind of glimmerings of this approach when it comes to asylum seekers. The ECJ, which is a court that is in a very strong position over the member states, kind of asserts a secure right of residence. Um, and this secure right of residence is qualitatively very different to the sort of rights of non-removal that individuals tend to get into human rights law, even under refugee law in a certain context. So the European Convention on Human Rights, for example, protects people against removal in a way that supplements the Refugee Convention. But it doesn't grant them a secure right of residence, or it doesn't really give them um, an entitlement to any particular status that they can rely on. So there's sort of a precariousness <coughs> to human rights law. Whereas in contrast, kind of built into the structure of EU law is notions about security of residence and the kind of wholehearted embrace of the individual which is, I think, qualitatively different from international human rights law. Um, and that's really come about in kind of through a long process of not only driven by the European Court of Justice, but that's obviously been a main actor in that particular process. Um, so in the larger work that I've been doing, I've been looking at sort of institutional explanations for that. Um, and one of them is that international human rights law, well, some instruments of international human rights law don't have strong adjudicatory bodies at all. Like, say, the international companies have committees that can make determinations, but states frequently ignore those determinations. So we have rules on detention, like cases against Australia about detention of asylum seekers, but they haven't driven great institutional change, although they're important norms that are elucidated there. Um, the Refugee Convention, as we know, has no court, no dedicated court, so we have lots of divergences across the member states, and governments take restrictive interpretations of certain key provisions. Um, and probably the most powerful human rights court is the Strasbourg Court, the European Court of Human Rights. Um, but even there, as I'll show when I talk about SADI, there's a tentativeness around immigration control issues. In contrast, when we look at the ECJ, it's in a very strong institutional position. Partly because it's built up this habit of obedience, and partly because it's not a last appeal court, but rather it's a court that talks directly to national judges because national judges can ask questions of it. Okay, so, th so to this extent, I'm kind of drawing on a broader thesis, which um, I probably quite unfairly I haven't set out in the paper, but I just wanted to explain why I'm looking at these interactions between international human rights and so the flashpoint that I'm just going to set up today is between the Strasbourg rules on detention and some potential that we see coming from the Luxembourg Court, the European Court of Justice, the EU Court. So the key provision, and Delal is going to talk about this as well, is Article 5 of the European Convention, which I've just I've given you the key bit of the text on the second page of the paper. But it basically allows for two different types of detention that affect asylum seekers and regular migrants. It's, it allows detention to prevent unauthorized entry, and it allows for pre-deportation detention. And on both limbs of that, it's kind of produced, well, if you're a human rights lawyer who wants to use this instrument to get people out of immigration detention, frankly, quite disappointing cases. So on the pre-deportation side, it's really allowed for extremely long periods of detention if there's any kind of a reasonable prospect of detention under a ruling called Shahan. And probably even more disappointing is the case that I flagged up here called Sadi in the UK, which is on 
um, the uh, detention of those who are deemed to be not authorized to their arrival. And in that ruling, which I've set out in some length on the, the draft paper, I mean, just to give you the gist, um, I guess the first question is who is not authorized in their entry? And very strong arguments were made that asylum seekers, once they are, you know, once they make it clear that they are seeking asylum, they have a temporary right of residence. And there are international law norms in the Refugee Convention that would support that kind of categorization of an asylum seeker as an authorized temporary entrant. And the Strasbourg Court said no, that until the state itself says the asylum seeker is authorized in her residence, a state could deem asylum seekers as a category to be unauthorized in their entry. So that brought them within this vulnerable category. And then the court very quickly said, well, that doesn't mean you can have automatic detention of asylum seekers as a category. But it said that detention could be for a variety of reasons, including um, basically administrative convenience, the running of the asylum system. And in the particular case then, it really just set up what amounts to kind of a non-arbitrariness standard. And in this particular case, although Sadi arrived in the UK, promptly made an asylum application, there was no fear of him absconding, he was the model asylum seeker. The court said, well, you know, it's still good for him to be detained because that would mean that the asylum seeker, the asylum system works better. So they're powerful then dis dissenting um, judgments, which I've extracted in the paper that you can look at with. And the judges in the minority in Strasbourg just saying, look, this is, you know, the ends justifies the means, this is not human rights logic, this is putting asylum seekers in a completely vulnerable category, and even that the in-casu assessment of whether detention can be justified is incorrect. So that's the disappointing sadly. And we can maybe talk a little bit more about why the Strasbourg Court was so cautious, but nonetheless, it was really disappointing ruling because obviously cases like that get brought because people feel that domestic law is lacking on this issue and that they'll get some added value from taking a Strasbourg case. Mm -hmm. In fact, if anything, they, the domestic system got worse after Saturday because of the licenses, detention probably in greater, in a wider array of situations than we knew before. We were probably better off with uncertainty if we were concerned about getting people out of immigration detention than Saturday. So my question then becomes EU law to the rescue, which might seem quite peculiar because EU law has just a patchwork of very uninspiring rules on detention. So but what it can do, I think, and the hint has already been put out in the case of Alcantara, is in relation to, again, if we think about our two categories of detention, there's the arrival of detention for non-authorized immigrants and the pre-deportation detention. On the, on the arrival issue, asylum seekers who arrive and just want to assert that they should be allowed to stay temporarily for their claims to be assessed, the European Court of Justice in a case called Kazov asserted that EU law grants a right of residence. So that's quite interesting actually, because in other cases, Strasbourg has said, well, an EU right of residence is a right of residence, even under the ECHR regime. So there's kind of an interaction there between qualitatively it makes a difference to your sort of legal patrimony if you have an EU law right of residence or any kind of EU law right, but the right of residence is one of the argument that I'm making here. So there's potential to sort of undermine SADI by saying, well, asylum seekers within the EU at least 
have this secure right of residence. It's temporary, but it's qualitatively needed. And then the second issue that came up in this CADSA ruling was really the core of it, because what it's actually concerned with is pre-deportation detention. And the instrument being interpreted there was the Returns Directive, which was an extremely controversial measure adopted by the European, the Council, and the Parliament by pre-decision. Um, and it was immensely controversial, controversial because it deals with deportations and detention of those facing deportation. And was, I mean, there was an NGO campaign against it called or OutrageousDirective.org. And it, I think for the first time, put EU um, immigration law on the global stage because there was such a lot of interventions from non-EU member states saying, kind of looking in at the EU from the outside and seeing this as kind of a punitive anti-immigration measure, which it is. Um, and I guess most controversially, it seems to license 18 months detention, pre-deportation detention. So the question that went from a Bulgarian court in something of a celeb cadzal um, concerned somebody who'd been in detention for a really long time as an illegal entrant, partly because, as happens very often in many United States, he wasn't able to make an asylum claim. So there were many failed attempts to hand in his asylum papers, which didn't go right. And so he was being detained in Bulgaria as an unlawful entrant, and then as an asylum seeker, and then as a failed asylum seeker, and the clock just was running down. And so the court said, well, how much of this can be regarded as pre-deportation detention? And the ECJ decided this in this very odd accelerated procedure, which means for lawyers who like mining cases for kind of strong statements of principle, and nice affirmations of human dignity, or suggestions of how courts might decide future cases, that's not there. This is like a really terse, bang, 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 answer the questions kind of case, so it's, that's why it's difficult for me to get too excited about it. But nonetheless, the court said very clearly that asylum seekers have a right to reside. Asylum seekers are not in detention, it can be categorized as pre-deportation detention. And most of the time it had others in detention, implicitly then was not pre-deportation detention. And so that basis for detention couldn't be relied on. And it also gave some guidance on the notion of reasonable prospect, which seems potentially to be a bit stricter than the way Strasbourg looks at when detention is on a reasonable prospect. So you know, there isn't that much cause for hope of it, because it's, it's, you know, the legal instrument allows 18 months of pre-deportation um, detention, which nobody could get terribly excited about. But nonetheless, I guess what's interesting is the introduction of the second supranational court into this field, and kind of the potential to at least make arguments um, precluding general notions of asylum seekers being amenable to detention due to their unauthorized presence. And that argument is, I think it's quite easy to close that argument off now. Um, but nonetheless, it's only sort of a little incremental shift in some ways. So my thesis sort of remains that um, you know, we have lots of human rights norms, but yet the idea of a universal subject really remains elusive because border control has this pervasive impact even through human rights law. But actually maybe, and maybe this is kind of an ironic statement, but somehow EU law is more attuned to the notion of you know, being insensitive to sovereign discretion and just looking at states for what they are, which is governments, courts, parliaments, and telling national courts to knock national governments on the head and constrain executive discretion. 
So that's a feature built into EU law, which means that there isn't kind of an added source of normative value in having EU rules in this field. The difficulty is those particular rules don't say very helpful things, like 18 months detention is still a thing. So that's my story for today. And, and it's only beginning, and I guess that's why I have apologies for the paper being unfinished, and also my, it's really opening up a new chapter in relation to the law in this area, the EU dimensions. Thank you.